going well. Yeah, sort of story does take on its own life. Um, I now sometimes I will do a lot of planning in advance. Sometimes when I sit down, I have it very, very cl- clearly plotted out. Other times it will be much scantier than that. But yeah, a really good story. It just sort of um, the words come. You know, even if I know where it's going, I don't know how exactly I'm going to get there. And as I go along, things start to unfurl and characters start to develop. And yeah, it's, it doesn't write itself by any means, but it does flow through in a way. You know, if you ask me, you know, how to actually do it, I can't really <laughs> explain. It's almost like breathing in that way, right? It just, it's this natural state. It, it is. You, um, there's certain things you have to do. You have to force yourself to do it, but the words will always come. There's always words there and you'll find yourself sometimes not the right words, but more often than not, they are. And you've, you've got, you've got to have a, a lot of faith as a writer. You've got to believe that it's going to happen. Um, you can't, if you think about it too much, that's where the dreaded writer's block phrase comes from. Which isn't something I believe in. I think the words will always come as long as you don't stick yourself too, too firmly in the way of them. And I think that's when overthinking, that's when writers sometimes block off the words because they start thinking too much about what's going to happen. And if you do that, it's terrifying because you, know, you have to think of word by word, letter by letter, you've got to create all this. And you know, if, you, if you think about the mechanics involved, it's quite scary. So the best thing is not to think, just get on and write. It's almost analysis paralysis. You're thinking too far ahead. That's an excellent way of describing it. Yeah, it is. You kind of, you block yourself off. You start overthinking it and worrying and, you know, wanting to get it just right. So you're thinking, oh, I have to do this and I need to do that. But really, um, the skills are there. You know, if you spend a lot of time writing and you develop, you know, the skills are always there. Um, you know, some stories will be better than other stories. You know, you can never judge. You can never predict the quality of a story in advance. I've had ideas what I thought were great books in the past. And they've turned out rather mediocre. There have been other things where I think, oh, well, that's not the, that's not my best sort of idea. And it's just clicked. Something's something's gone. So you can never guarantee the quality of it, but you can certainly guarantee that you can produce as long as you get yourself out of the way and let those words flow through. So for you getting yourself out of the way, does that mean you're trying to sit yourself in those characters in that particular moment and write it as you're going through the scene? Not really. It's, it's more more a case of having a routine. Uh, I find every writer's different, obviously, but for me, routine makes it much, much easier than if I try and write without a routine. So uh, it's, it's been different the last several years. Since I've had children, my routines have gone out the window and I'm working to school routines and after school routines and uh, my writing, I'm not quite as prolific as I was back in the day. But yeah, back when I was writing Cert the Freak and The Demonata, um, yeah, all of my books pretty much up to about seven or eight years ago, I would work a five-day week and I would set myself a target of what is it, 10, 10, A, 10 A4 pages a day. so about 3,000 words a day, r- roughly. And that's what I would make myself do every day. So I would sit there. So rather than sitting down at the start of the day thinking, okay, I've got to come up with this, I've got to do this, I've got to try and get a character to develop in this sort of way, all I'm thinking of, I've got to produce my 3,000 words a day. I've got to get those words down on paper. And it doesn't matter if they're, the worst 3,000 words have ever been written. Um, doesn't matter if I'm in the flow and it's all going lovely and brilliantly. I do 3,000 words a day and I clock off at that stage. I do my 10 pages. You know, it doesn't matter if I'm in the zone and I think oh, I want to carry on and do another 10 pages. I don't. I stop at that point. That's my work for the data. And that just allowed me then, there's no pretension in the mix. There's nothing sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to create the next Ulysses, Joyce's Ulysses. Yeah, I'm just, it, it might end up being Ulysses, but... I'm there just writing. I'm let, I've got to get these words out. And there's no hiding from that. There's no 
pretending I've done a good day's work if I've only got one page at the end of it. I know if I haven't got 10 pages at the end of the day, no matter what excuse I might come up with, and right as I'm brilliant at coming up with excuses, I have had a lazy day at the office and I've got to make that up the next day. Um, for a long, long time, I would hit my page count pretty much every day for a long, long time. And then when um, when I started touring and going out on the road, that sort of changed. I would be at home maybe for two or three weeks. And I'd, I might work two or three weeks straight. Then I might be on the road for two or three weeks. So it, it, that did change over time. But back when I was writing the first drafts in the 1990s before I became a published author, I really, really threw myself into it and just dedicated myself to the the manual work of being an author, which of course isn't the fun part. Everyone wants to hear about the muse whispering in your ear and the ideas striking. Where do your ideas come from? That's what everyone wants to know about writing. But writing is for the most part manual work. The idea will come from anywhere and it, it can be one second. Cert free came to me one day when I was sitting in the car, babysitting a young cousin who was asleep in the back seat. I had this idea of a boy who meets a vampire at a circus and ends up reluctantly becoming his assistant. And that just came into my head in, in front seat of a car. But I then had to go and write out that story word by word. I had to develop the characters. I had to find explanations for why the boy was at the circus, why the vampire was there, why the vampire wanted to blood the boy. And you know, all that hard work is a lot less glamorous than the original idea. But ideas won't get you to where you want to be as a writer if you want to produce finished products. I had great ideas when I was 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age. I didn't have the skills to convert those ideas into stories. You've got to put in a lot of hard work. It's not a case of letting the muse flow through you and getting carried away and, and writing in this wistful, wondrous days. It, it's, it's hard work. It's lonely work. When I'm talking to kids, I'll often say to them, trying to explain it, right, imagine doing homework for the rest of your life. And that's what writing is. You're stuck in a room all by yourself, exactly the way you were doing homework when you were a teenager. And you've got to do it. If you don't do it, it won't get done. And um, yeah, there's no teacher there to mark, you, to mark you down for it. But you have to be that teacher. You have to be the authority figure. I often say, uh, when you write, you work for yourself. And you've got to be a son of a bitch to work for. Because it has to be done. Yeah, that idea of the muse almost trips a lot of people up. Because rather than focus on actually doing the work, they get stuck in this idea of, well, I have to feel like I'm good. Like I've got the idea, I have to prepare, I have to be in this great state of mind. All of these things have to click into place and then I can do the thing. Then I can start writing, then I can start working on whatever it is. But if one thing is out of balance, I can't. Yeah, it's a lovely idea, but it's nonsense. Everyone accepts, if you want to be a professional footballer or a professional baseball player, you've got to go out and practice constantly, week after week, year after year, to develop your body, to get to the stage where you can do that professionally and compete with the others but there's this idea of a lot of people that writers somehow don't have to do that that it's all you do it on the on the hoof and it magically happens and it's not it's exactly the same the only difference is it normally takes longer you know sports athletes tend to develop in their late teens early 20s and hit their peak by the mid-20s you know authors are only really getting going normally at that stage normally you're in your 30s 40s before you really start to get to where you you you, you want to be there are, there are exceptions. I was an exception. I was in my mid-twenties when I first published my first book. But um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of hard work. Isn't it? And that actually is what makes it feel worthwhile. If it came too easily, it'd be like winning the lottery. You know, it's very nice, but any chump can win the lottery. If you produce a really good book, the hard work that goes into it lets you know, you know, you're not a chump. This isn't something that's happened by luck. 
you've put a lot of blood and sweat and tears, you've dealt with all the insecurities, you've got through that nonsense of, oh, it's going to be the muse flowing through me. Um, yeah, everyone's got a book in them, but very few people have the dedication to take them to the point where they can actually release that book out into the world. And if you've done that, having gone through that hard work, that's what makes it really, really special. It's, um, yeah, it's not, it's not what Hollywood wants to hear because they want the eureka moments. But that's what, yeah, that's where the, um, that's where the satisfaction comes from of knowing you've had to work hard to achieve what you've produced at the end of the day. And not even just work hard, but had the ability to endure potentially decades of anonymity before you finally get the story that clicks at the right time. Yep, uh, I, I was a big failure before I became a big success. Uh, the, the frustrating thing is they're both the same side of a coin and you can never tell which side is going to come up, even though it's the same coin. Um, to explain what I mean by that, when I wrote Cert the Freak, I, I write for adults as well, and I'd actually sold a book for adults before I sold Cert the Freak. Um, I wrote Cert the Freak, it was a side project. I, I'd always wanted to write for younger readers, but I didn't think it was going to be a career move. I thought it was something I was going to do on the side that writing for adults would be my main job. No, that's not how things turned out. So when I wrote the first draft of Cert the Freak, I, I wasn't sure where I was going to go with it in terms of taking it to market and, you know, was this something I could actually make a living from? Um, I, I thought it was good. I liked the first draft. But, you know, it was new territory for me, so I wasn't sure. I sent it to my agent. He loved it. He said, this is really good. I think, you know, you're onto something here. He sent it to 20 publishers in the UK to try and get a bidding war going so that we could you know, get a nice big offer um, and I'd, I'd be off and running. And all 20 turned it down. Nobody wanted to touch Cert Freak with a barge pole. Now, my agent, being a really good agent, he set up a few meetings with um, three different publishers, uh, the, with the editors at those publishing houses, to talk to them. What, what didn't they like about it? You know, why were they rejecting this novel? Because he thought it was great. And he couldn't understand why nobody wanted to, to touch it. And ahead of one of those meetings, one of the editors, a lady called Domenica De Rosa, read through the book a second time, just to refresh herself with the story before we came and met with her. And when she read it a second time, something clicked and she said, actually, there's something here. And she made a few suggestions for changes I might make. And I went off and I wrote a second draft, edited, tightened up a bit in the editing process. And when we went back to where that, she took it on. And it became obviously this, you know, it's the fact that it's the founding style of my entire career. Certain Freak is what I'm best known for. Um, it's almost 25 years since it came out. January 2000 was when it was first published in the UK. It sold millions of copies around the world. It's the entry point for the vast, vast majority of my fans. Even though I've published over 60 books, that's still the one that has made me. Um, it's the reason the name of Darren Shan, if it's known, is, is known at all. But it very nearly was never published. Darren Shan very nearly never existed. My adult books at the time I released under my real name, Darren O'Shocknessy. And um, if not for that meeting and that editor reading the book a second time, Certain Freak wouldn't have happened. My career as a YA global best-selling author would never have happened. I'd still be trying to get trying to make progress with my adult books, which have never taken off. Now, maybe if Certain Freak hadn't come along and I devoted more time to adult work, perhaps I would have got a lucky break in front of those. But equally, perhaps not. When I wrote Certain Freak, I was living with my parents. I was drawing the dole on employment benefits. I was getting a grand sum of 25 Irish pounds a week which was about $30, I think, back, back in uh, 1997. But yeah, and um, it went from being this completely valueless work that nobody wanted to publish 
to be in this hugely valuable work that got turned into a Hollywood movie that you know has provided me with this incredible lifestyle that's allowed me to provide for my children. And it's the same book. It's exactly the same book as when it was a failure, as when it was a success. Um, drives me mad. <laughs> yeah, because you can't predict it. You're a loser you until you're not. And you don't know when that not point comes, if it comes at all. Yeah. And I always say to authors, authors started out children or adults who are, who are getting going, you've got to redefine your terms of success, of success away from the commercial success. Your goal as a writer should be to write the very best stories you can write. You know, I knew Certain Freak was, was, was a good book. It was the best book I could write for teenagers at that particular time in my life. The adult books that I've published over the years, even though they haven't been bestsellers, they've been the best books I can produce at that time in my life. That's got to be your goal. And if you do that, you know you've done everything you can do. And after that, it's in the lap of the gods. You can get that rubber to green, that lucky break, and you can be up there on the bestseller lists and you can be you know, strutting around saying, yeah, I've got all the answers. I know what I'm doing. I'm, yeah, come and, come, come, and, come and become the next Darren Shan. But um, it is really that lucky break. There's loads of authors far more talented than me whose books just haven't sold the same way that mine have. Um, similarly, there are probably authors less talented than me who've sold and who've outsold me. Um, when it comes to commercial success, it's not something you can control. And it's something that happens for reasons that no one fully understands. William Goldman, the scriptwriter, came up with a famous line in Hollywood, no one knows anything. He said, you know, a hit film can come from anywhere. You get all these executives who tell you they know what the market wants and how to create a successful film. You never really know. You never know what's going to be a godfather and a real turkey. It just comes along, you know, and things just happen, magic happens, and the hits come out of nowhere. And the publishing industry isn't maybe quite that hit and miss, but it's a lot more hit and miss than the people in the publishing industry would like to admit. No one saw Harry Potter coming. No one saw Twilight coming. No one saw Fifty Shades of Grey coming. Um, you've just got to believe in yourself, do the best job you can do, and then keep your fingers crossed that people out there will actually buy it. And, and that people out there will publish it first to get it, to give people the option of buying it. Because that's the thing. It's getting your work seen by um, by the buying public. Uh, I've, I self-published my most recent uh, series, Archibald Locks. And, you know, I reached far, far fewer readers than I was able to do going through a traditional publisher because I don't have those skills of marketing and publicising or the budget to get it out there. You know, what people see, people can buy. They have the option of doing it. So that's the, first, that's the hardest step for any author. It's not actually getting it into the hands of people. It's getting it before the eyes of people so they can even know it exists. And being willing to stick with it, right? I mean, you'd imagine when you're going to these publishers and you're getting turned down with Cirque du Freak, especially after 20 times, you have to say, man, is this, is it really what I thought it was? Maybe I'm missing something here that everybody else sees. Uh, absolutely. It, it's it's soul destroyed. It really, really hurts. And there's no point putting us, uh, you know, even 25 years later, I don't know, 27 since, since that happened, you know, I can still just feel like someone had punched me in the gut. And that someone was Mike Tyson. <laughs> it was a, a, a nice little playful punch. It, it's horrible. Rejection is horrible. And I think often when you succeed as a writer, you can sweep rejection under carpet at an extent. When you're doing interviews like this, I'll often go, oh, yeah, you get rejected. You've got to take it on the chin. And yeah, we sort of, we, I, I, I'm guilty of often just saying, oh yeah, it's just it's objection, something it happens to us all, take it on the chin, keep going. And no, it is bloody hard. It is really horrible when you pour your soul into a book, you put it out there and people tell you, no, we don't like it. 
it's um, yeah, it's a it's a horrible feeling. But we do all get rejected. It is something we've all got to go through, and it's hard, especially when it's professionals telling you your book isn't commercially viable, and you're there with nothing to support you, saying, "But it is, it is." I can remember the day my agent rang me up. He said, "Darren, he, you know, tell me." They've all turned it down. All 20 publishers have turned it down. There was no soft coat. He just, oh, look, he said, because I knew he'd, he'd submitted it. He said, look, they've all said no. And he was, he was a bit shocked to say me I was. And I can remember, I went for, I'd go for a walk every day, you know, a long walk. And I went out for a walk. And I, I put the question to myself, you know, you've got these 20 experts in the industry saying, this is rubbish. You know, I'm a 20, what age was I? No, I was 24 or 25. I think maybe 25 until I finished it. I'm a 25-year-old guy who hasn't published anything yet who doesn't know the YA market. You know, do you really think you know more than all those experts? And um, by the end of the walk, I decided, yes, I did. And I said, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to keep going. Um, I take the humiliation on the chin. You know, when you get rejected like that, it could be, you know, the natural thing to do is to hide. Say, okay, they've all just turned it down. 20 people have said it's rubbish. Yeah, you know, I don't want to go out and meet with these people and talk about the book. Yeah, that's just going to be even more humiliating. But I made myself do it. I believed in the book. I believed it was worth fighting for. And I did fight for it. I went out and fought for it. And it's one of those lovely success stories where I ended up on top. It turned around. It's that rocky moment where you're down on the canvas and I struggled back to my feet. I managed to get through the end of the round and went on to win the contest. But um, that doesn't happen as often as we'd like to think it does. Very often you get knocked down and you are down and out for the count. If that editor hadn't read the book ahead of that meeting that my agent set up, there would have been no coming back up. It just, it just couldn't have got out to the starting gates. And this was the time before... Um, Self-publishing was so easy and cheap. You know, there was no Amazon Prime to go on to and launch the books without spending any money. You know, if you want to self-publish, it costs a load of money, and you had to print the books up. So yeah, that just would have been that would have been the end of it. It would have been the end of my career as a as a YA author. So, um, but yeah, you've just got to believe in yourself. You and it's hard, but you've got to have that belief, and you've got to keep going because it can. I was lucky; it happened at very early in my career when I got that lucky break. For a lot of authors, it can be 20, 30, 40 years down the line. There's always that hope. You could be writing all your life. You could be in your 80s and suddenly you could do something that just someone, somebody in the publishing industry likes and goes, yeah, we'll take a chance of that. And suddenly Frank McCaw, um, who's from Limerick, like I was originally, he wrote Angel's Ashes, I think he was in his 60s when he wrote it and suddenly it changed his life around it. It's never too late. You've, you can always dream, no matter how bad things are getting, no matter how many people have turned your work down. There's, there's enough stories like mine to let you know it does happen. The tables can be turned. You've got to keep dreaming keep believing and keep, keep putting it out there. Yeah. Except nobody wants to be the 80 year old when your work finally breaks, right? Everyone wants to be in their twenties, their first book. And it just is a lightning rod. It is. It is. At, at the same time, it, it, it depends what age you are in life. Like I'm 51 now. And you know, that, that excitement happened for me 25 years ago. I, I'd quite like it. If it was happening now. You know, if, if it was, if I was waking up in the morning and my big break was there and, you know, suddenly midway through my life, I had all this exciting stuff happening to me. It, it would be thrilling. I, I can remember talking to um, Michael Murpurgo. Uh, he wrote War Horse, which was filmed by Spielberg some years ago. But he, he'd been a jobbing writer for many, many years. He's a good bit older than me. He was 80, actually. I think this month or last month. And um, we, our paths had crossed quite a lot. We were having the same publisher when I started out. And he'd written War Horse quite a long time before it became well-known. It, it was a little children's book that didn't really do anything. And then it got turned into a play at the National Theatre. And it suddenly went massive. 
and it, it came back into print and it sold millions of copies and the movie, Hollywood movie came along. But before that happened, before the play came out, I remember having a chat with him one day and he was sort of scowling. He said, he said I'm sick of this. I want to do what you've done. I want something like Certain Freak which is just going to take me out there. And you know, I'm always struggling with money. I'm always trying to get you know, my books, get lots of critical acclaim. They don't make any money. And I'm really frustrated because I'm trying to do something that will make money. And I just can't do it. And what he didn't realise was he had done that book, but he released it you know, a decade earlier or however long ago it had come out. And suddenly the world found it and he had that, that magic story and it all came good. It almost shows you how much the gatekeepers really don't know about the industry that they're in. Especially with Cirque du Freak, I read that you went to one of these editors after they turned you down and their response was, boys don't read books, so we don't publish books for boys. And I read that and just started laughing because Cirque du Freak for me was the book that got me interested in reading. Like that was my gateway into that world. And it almost didn't happen because somebody thought, oh, boys don't read books. So let's not publish towards that market. That, that infuriated me so much back then and still does. And to be honest, it, it's to an extent, publishers still have that view when it comes to teenage boys in particular. There's no doubt that teenage girls will read more, more than boys naturally. Um, yeah, we're wired differently and our brains work in a different way and teenage boys and the hormones kick in. It can be hard to focus. But if you give them books that they can connect with and get into, they will read. If, yeah. But that idea of, oh, well, they're a hard audience to reach, so we won't try reaching them. I just, it drives me mad, that sort of thinking. You've got to, you try harder. If you've got, everyone can be a reader. Everyone can enjoy books and everyone benefits from books. We all know if you read for fun, that has knock-on beneficial effects all across the board. I've, I've had so many letters and emails over the years from readers who you know, weren't big readers when they were kids. Uh, they weren't good students. They read my books. They got more into reading and their grades improved on the back of that because it does. You know, reading, you read, we read for fun. We should always read for fun first and foremost. But it is educationally stimulating. It gets the brain firing. It brings ideas into play. It creates... Um, it changes us. Reading can change us. And so I think for those who are reluctant readers, we have to try harder to get to them. Instead of just saying, oh, well, brushing them aside, forgetting about them. No, we've got to go up. We've got to do more to get our books into the hands of people who maybe wouldn't automatically gravitate towards them. Yeah, you would think that'd be a market that people would want to hit. Oh, this there's untapped potential here. We're not seeming to break through with these with this demographic. Let's see if we can get something in there to fill that void rather than, oh, well, let's not even try. Everyone's chasing the easy buck. <laughs> it's a lot of people are. A lot. There's loads of great people in the publishing industry who, who aren't like that, who are trying to always reach out to those on the fringes, those on the margins, those who maybe aren't natural readers. But look, they've got to, they've got budgets. They've got to, you know, hit targets like in any other field. I feel sorry. Yeah, I don't feel, not that I feel sorry for them. I understand where they're coming from. You know, I can understand that, that statement still frustrates and angers me, but I can understand what that person was saying. You know, he's saying, well, look, if I don't produce, if I don't have my books making X amount of pounds or dollars this year, I'm going to be out of a job. I'm not going to be reaching no one. So I can sort of understand it, but I still think there's always room to be doing more. And in fairness, you know, quite a few publishers will, will do that. But, um, yeah, not, not not enough for me. I think there's always should be not 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 chasing the easy dream in life. Again, going back to what I was saying about writing is hard work, and 
yeah, we, it, it is about hard work and it should be about that. And it shouldn't just be about meeting the easy targets, setting the easy goals. Anything really worthwhile in life should be difficult and hard to attain. And you should have to work hard to go after that's, that's That's my view anyway. Have you always had that mentality? Or is that something no. you've kind of cultivated over the years? No, I was a lazy, good-for-nothing teenager who was in love with the idea of putting the least amount in and getting the most amount out. So, um, I, no, there's nothing like a convert to be overzealous. No, it, it, was, it was a learning curve for me. Um, I'd always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a very young child. And into my, into my early teens, I had this idea that it was something that was going to happen organically. And that I would just, yeah, it would just come through me and I'd write when I felt like writing and the stories would flow and that's how it worked. And then I, I came to realise it wasn't. You know, the more I failed, the more I realised, well, actually, I'm going to have to work really hard if I want to succeed. I was writing stories that were no good. And I realised, well, look, the only way to, t- to learn to write good stories is to work harder. I'm not, I, I'm naturally rather work shy. I um, and, and even to this day, I'm a bit sort of work shy. Uh, as I said, I, I would work, I, as I said a while ago, I would write about 3,000 words a day, so 10 to 84 pages, but I write very quickly. I would do that within about three to four hours, and that would be it. My working day would be about three or four hours, and that's enough for me. I've worked hard for those four hours. The other 20 are all mine. Now, of course, someone else might say, well, if you can do 10 pages in four hours, you can do 20 in eight hours. Why not work an eight-hour day like everyone else in the world? But there is that bit of laziness in me. So I found a nice balance of, working just hard enough and also having time to enjoy life because I think it is important to enjoy life. Uh, I really cut myself off in the world in my 20s. I spent my 20s just writing and it was been good for me for my career, but it wasn't good for me as a person. And I always say to young authors, which is, my, my, which is what my agent said to me actually when I was starting out with him, he said to me at one point, Darren, you, know, you need to just put, put right aside for a year or two, go and explore the world, go and travel, go and have fun. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to work hard. And I advanced quicker by working hard. But I look back now 30 years later and think, yeah, I probably should have taken some time off. And it, it's, it's hard because as a young person, you want things to happen quickly. And if you have that drive, that drive can be a good thing. But I would always say make room for the good things in life well, as well. You know, enjoy life. It's no point being hugely successful if all you're doing is continuing to chase the dream and work for the dream. You know, you've got to have time for your family, your friends, for travel, for sport, for reading, for, yeah, for whatever floats your boat. It's, it's, it's finding that balance. And um, I think I found it pretty well. It took me a while to figure it out. And in my 20s, I went too far to the, the, work, to the work hard sort of way of it. But, um, but yeah, you, but you do have to work hard. You don't, necessarily, you don't necessarily have to work hard all the time. Do you think that you have to go through that period of time where you are almost just shutting out the world to focus on your work? I don't think so. I don't think most writers do. Um, not to the extent I did. I was, um, you know, I'm rather an odd odd sock in many ways. Uh, I, I, was, I grew up in the 70s. You know, I've never been diagnosed for anything like ADHD or autism or anything like that. But, you know, I'm definitely <laughs> in that sort of zone, I'm, I'm sure, because, you know, I've, um, I'm definitely got OCD tendencies. And, you know, in the 1970s, I was just known as a wild child. Whereas I think I probably would have been these days diagnosed as ADHD. So um, no, I, I think most people are more more naturally well adjusted than I was. It took me a while to find that balance because my brain was just wired to the mood, and I was it was firing all over the place, and I was a bit like a dog, you know, chasing, looking around for a stick, 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 stick. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, yeah, no, you don't need you don't need to suffer. I never like to. I would I would never want to propagate that sort of idea that oh, you have to cut yourself off for everything. You have to put family and friends aside. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. You know, if you do, if that's the way your brain's driving you, if that's how you go, yeah, fair enough. But I, I can remember there was a point in my late twenties when um, I'd sold certain free things were starting to happen for me. I'd, I'd started touring. Um, I'd started making money. It was brilliant. But I was still living at home. I was still working, you know, to that same restrictive routine and not really going out much. And I, I can remember just thinking, no, I'm not, this isn't happiness. I'm not properly happy. I'm very, very content with my work. I'm very satisfied in what I'm doing. But I need to have more in my life than just this. And I sort of sat down and thought, what do I need to do? I need to sort of, I didn't take a break, but I sort of I moved away from home. I went to London for a year. I, um, yeah, let, let my hair down a bit just had made a bit more fun time for myself. And that's when I realised, yeah, I've got to fight, got to get this balance right or else I'm just going to be a curmudgeonal grump. Yeah, it's it's a, it's difficult finding that balance, especially when you're starting out in whatever field you're involved in. The inclination is almost to just focus on the work at the expense of anything and everything. You, it's the work that is going to get you where you want to be. Everything else is almost a distraction in some way. But that doesn't lead to a happy, well-fulfilled life because then you might get the success and not have anybody around you to enjoy it with. And then you're miserable and successful, which might be worse. Precisely. Uh, years later, um, I saw a brilliant, brilliant film. I love it. Uh, Whiplash. Great film. Great about, film. About drama, super. But I wish I'd seen that when I was 17 or 18. <laughs> that would just, yeah. Sometimes you can work too hard. Yeah, I, what a great film, but it almost speaks, I mean, it speaks to that perfectly because look at where it got him, though. He worked really hard. He was pushed past the edge, but he was great at his craft because of it. Yeah, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm in that same sort of boat. I worked for my 20s. I did that. I did the nose to the grindstone and kept going and going and going, and I would not have got to where I got without doing that. But um, I, I only sort of found true happiness when I started to relax a little bit. And get, but maybe look, maybe you have to. Some people, I think you do have to go go that route. Um, but I would never say, yeah, unless you're naturally driven to go that route, I wouldn't force myself down it. Is all I'm saying to young people. Don't feel like you've got to deliberately push people away from yourself. Is that something you do naturally because you're a bit socially awkward? And yeah, that, that, that's that, that just that just happens. But don't feel like, oh yes, I've got to cut myself off. I've got to dedicate myself. Um, there's more to life than just being the best you can at what you work at. Um, that, you know, and what you work at is what people see. You know, people know me for my writing, but you know, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things in your life, like an iceberg, seven apes underneath the water, things that no one ever sees, but that go just as much towards defining who you are as a person and what sort of life you're living as you know, the big stuff that's out there on public view. Yeah, everybody's not seeing all of the work behind the scenes, everything below the water level. Yeah, precisely. And, um, and some of that's boring stuff, some of that's, but some of that's wonderful stuff as well. And, you know, the happiness, for me, it's all about getting that balance right. And, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a tightrope, and it's when we walk all the way through life. You know, I'm in a pretty good place right now. I could fall off that tightrope tomorrow. You know, we never know what life's going to throw at us and how things are going to change. But, um, yeah, try, the, the balance, I think, is always good. And I think it helps when the thing that you're pursuing, even if it is a relentless pursuit is something that you truly love. I've heard you say that you would write even if you weren't making any money for it. And I think that's the only way that 
nose to the grindstone mentality is maintainable as if it's something that you love and is almost all consuming in that because you love it so much. If you hated writing and you were working as much as you were, it would be ruthless. It would be absolutely. No, it's, um, yeah, again, it's something I always say to, to young writers, you know, write stories you're going to enjoy. Because it is lonely work, it's hard work. The chances of you getting a lucky break and being financially successful are very slim. Yeah, write for the love of it. Just write stories that excite you, that thrill you, that intrigue you, and hope that it does well. And for years and years, I would always say that, uh, even though I didn't get paid to write, I would do it anyway. And in recent years, I have actually been proven that. Um, you know, I wrote Archibald Locks. I couldn't get a publisher for it, so I self-published it. I could have just sat, put it aside and stopped halfway through, but I made myself go on, I made myself complete it. I'm bringing out a picture book next year, the first time trying to do a picture book. And again, I took the idea. I have an artist friend of mine who's going to illustrate it. And we, we went to some publishers with the idea. But, you know, I've never written a picture book before. She'd never drawn a picture book. We were two unknown properties. And, you know, they sort of, it made them nervous. They, they just didn't have faith in us. So rather than just let it drop, we're fundraising. We're going to put a picture, we're going to get the money so she can afford to work on it. Not full time, but putting enough work to, to get it finished, hopefully within, within a year or so. And we're going to put it out there. And then we're going to go back to the publishers. We're going to try again. We're going to try and get it published. But even if it doesn't, if that doesn't happen, we will still have produced the work. Um, yeah, you've got to do it because you, lo- you love doing it. And it's much nicer when you love doing it and you get paid loads of money to do it. There's no denying that. I'm not going to pretend any, anything else. But it's still producing the work is the most important thing. Getting it finished, getting a book finished, putting it out there. And luckily today, you know, with self-publishing, it is easier, much, much easier than it was in the past to get your books out there. And there are huge success stories that have come through the self-publishing work now. I've got two two really good friends who live in, well, one in England, one in Scotland. And about 15, 20 years ago, they were writing YA books like me. And neither of them ever got a really lucky break. They never got, they, were, they produced, they wrote lots of books. They were really, really good books, but they just never really took off. Um, they were all traditionally published. And then a few years ago, they started doing crime books, uh, self-published online, and they've made a fortune in it. It's converted the lives around. I'm so delightful. It just changed the life around completely. So, yeah, it is possible for that to happen. Um, now, most people self-publishing aren't going to, that's not going to happen to them. With me, that, that hasn't happened. You know, I've done pretty well with the Archibald Locks, but still, you know, it hasn't sold anywhere near as well as my traditionally published works, like certain Free Demonata, Zombie, and so on. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's, I get to I produce the work first and foremost, and after that, you look at what you can do with it. You know, ideally, someone gives you loads of money, turns it into a bestseller. But if not, you sort of take a deep breath, you dig your heels in and think, okay, well, how do I get get this out into the world, at least in some small way? How do I get you know, a handful of people to look at it, a few hundred people to look at it, a few thousand people to look at it? You go and you, you search for your audience, you fight for your audience. And it's not as much fun as when someone else is doing that for you. But yeah, if you believe in the story, you've got to, it's always worth fighting for. When you were shopping around with Archibald Locks trying to get a publisher for that, did your back catalog carry any weight? Did they look at your previous work and say, well, this guy has a track record of, you know, producing successful work. Maybe we should give this a shot, even if we're unsure about it. You'd think it would, but no, it didn't hold any weight of them, bizarrely. Um, I don't know, it was, it was very, it was quite different to other work. It wasn't horror. It was more sort of fantasy. It was deliberately a bit slower paced. It was a gentler book. And yeah, they just, it wasn't what they wanted a Darren Shan book to be. You know, having, having not been interested in Darren Shan in the first place 20 years earlier, they now had an idea of what Darren Shan should be. Um, it's like the old Barton Fink movie that the, 
the Coen brothers did where he, um, he writes, uh, gets very famous for writing a play and he goes to work in Hollywood and he produces something exactly the same as the play and Hollywood produces, no, 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 that's not what Barton Fink does. I want a Barton Fink movie. <laughs> and it's, um, yeah, no, it, it was it was bizarre. It, it was hard. It was harder for me, the rejection with Archibald Locks than it was with Certain Freak. Because with Certain Freak, I was a nobody. You know, with Archibald, with Archibald Locks, you know, I sold 25 million copies of books around the world. You know, I thought that would count for something that, you know, even if the publishers didn't love it, they'd say, well, okay, we'll take a chance on it. We'll put it out there. Um, you know, Darren knew what he was talking about before with his previous series. Maybe, maybe he's seen something in this that we don't see, but no, 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 he didn't. And it's, it's had a really good reaction. You know, look, if you go on Amazon or Goodreads, you know, it's right up there with all my other series, the reaction to it, the response from fans. It's been, you know, no, no real difference, but the, the experts decided it wasn't for them and it wouldn't fly. And so far it hasn't. Uh, it might get picked up one day. You never know. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it was very, very, very hard to take because, you know, I was at a stage in my life where I thought, okay, it's going to be easy now, I'll do this. And even if I don't get as big an advance for this one as I did for previous work, I'll certainly get out there. It never crossed my mind when I was doing the first draft that I might have to resort to self-publishing. But um, when I realised I did, it, was, it wasn't as easy. It wasn't easy to just to carry on with it, but I made myself do it. I said, well, look, I've been talking this BS for years, saying I'd do it even if I wasn't getting paid to do it. You know, is that real BS or am I going to prove it to be true? And I said, well, I'm going to do it. And I went ahead and I finished the series, um, self-publishable. And now I'm moving on and we'll see what happens next. Yeah, it's it's almost a challenge, that idea of typecasting. And it almost sounds like that comes more from the publishers in a way than it does from the audience. It's also the, the traditionally published market. You've got your big bookstores. You know, you've got your big online players now. And they all want something that they can easily market to people. But, you know, if, they, if you've got a new Stephen King book, they want to be marketed the exact same way as all the other Stephen King books. Now, Stephen King has actually, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. He's written all sorts of different books over the years. But they always play up the horrific angle. They always market it as horror. They always sort of get that because they know that's, that's what sells. That's what people want. And to be, and to be fair, yeah, that is what the market mostly wants. Um, with self-publishing, my friends of mine who I've said have been hugely successful, they've done that by working to a very specific formula. They write crime novels set in the UK, and there are people out there who just want crime novels set in the UK who buy this, this sort of book. Um, you know, the industry does know what it's doing to a large extent. You know, there's a lot of things they know are going to succeed because they succeeded before, they succeeded now, they will continue to succeed. And I'm always an outlier. I've always been an outlier. I've always been someone who likes to play around with stories, who doesn't write traditionally, who changes things up. If you look at certain freaking, it got sold as a horror novel. It wasn't really. It's, that's a fantasy adventure series. There's, there's science fiction in there. There's all sorts of things. But Demonata covers... It's got three different narrators. The storyline moves backwards and forwards in time. It's a bizarre series, but um, you know it doesn't fit neatly into a box. And I always think those are the best type kind of stories. They're the stories that excite me as a reader when I read them. I enjoy reading formulaic stuff as well. I, I do like crime. I do like thrillers. I love reading Lee Child, um, the, the Bosch books, all that sort of stuff. But the ones that really fire me up are those ones that don't neatly fit into any particular category but those are hard to market those are hard to publish it's hard to find your audience for those um, because the audience doesn't realize they like this particular type of book so um it's it's difficult but you know the, the, the market the traditional market is very much focused on giving people what it knows people are, are going to want and there is often something comes along that makes people realize actually we want something a bit different now 
but then everyone else jumps on the difference and <laughs> ends up becoming that way. So yeah, I sort of um, yeah, the market decided what a Darren Shanbook should be, and when I veered away a bit too much from that, <laughs> the market shunned Darren Shan. <laughs> Get us another Darren Shan, one who knows what Darren Shan should be doing. Yeah, one who fits the mold. Yeah, one who fits the mold. And look, I know I may come back with something else that does fit the mold down the line, and I might be back out there, you know, getting self space in big stores again, getting plugged by the publishers, getting a marketing campaign behind me. But um, I, I won't be chasing that. It's not something I will be going out to try to do. If it happens, brilliant. Yeah, you know, I won't turn away from it. I'm not going to deliberately write non-commercial work. I've never done that. But I've never written for the market either. I've never sat down and thought, okay, this is what I've got to do now. This is what my last book did. I'm going to repeat it. That's never... As a reader, I do... Sometimes you know, there are things I want. Like, like going to McDonald's. I want a Big Mac and fries. That's what I like. Big Mac and fries, McDonald's. Lovely. But um, as, as a writer, that's never interests me. It's just not a way I can work. I just can't work that way. I've sat down a couple of times in the past to try to do a traditional sort of thriller. And it's always ended up becoming this weird, bizarre concoction of, of different genres. Um, that's just the way my brain works. So I've been, I've been very, very lucky. For someone so far out of left field, I've had this hugely successful mainstream commercial career. I don't know how. <laughs> the publishers don't know how either. It's just sort of happened. Um, I got a lucky break. Word of mouth spread. You know, people reacted to books with love, and it, it, it was it was a real reader led success story it didn't happen because the marketing gurus knew exactly how to, to pitch this it just people liked it people read it they told their friends and it just grew and grew so I'll, I'll keep plugging away i hope there will be more commercial success ahead of me down the road but if there isn't i've had a great run so far i still hopefully will be producing interesting different stories all the way for however long i might have left in this life and that will be that's my main goal and then if I get a bit of rub the green again and get back to be a, get get one of those big comebacks that Hollywood loves, that'd be great. But um, if not, I won't lose any sleep over it. I think that that idea of coming out of left field is exactly why, because you had this unique voice and it translates into your work. I think one of the saddest things is when you see someone who's not creating for the sake of creating, but almost repurposing their old work or trying to fit into their own box because they've achieved some magnitude of success by fitting into that mold and then they become captured by it yeah uh, I, I, i'm not going to knock that because that takes a lot of hard work as well and if, if, if you're happy doing that and repeat the same formula over and over and just you know tweaking it slightly every time there's nothing wrong with that there's a huge market out there who do want that people who want to read that um it doesn't appeal to me as a creator and it's not something if you have to force yourself to do that i think it's going to be in the long run hard to take it's going to be you know, you're not going to get even though you might be very rich from it i do think it's going to gnaw away at your soul because but if you're happy doing that there are lots of people out there and they find a groove they like and they keep doing it yeah you know, in most walks of life people do the same thing over and over you know if you're a boxer you don't wrestle you don't do ballet you box that's it your career's there you're a boxer if you're a footballer you play football uh, in most in most people in life they have one career if you're a teacher you tend to teach in one subject if you're a secondary school teacher, you're teaching English, you don't suddenly start teaching science or physics. You, you, you know, but, but walking one line through life isn't, isn't ex, uh, uh, extraordinary. Yeah, most, that's what most people do. So if the writers who do that, and that's what you feel natural doing, 
I'm envious in a way of those writers. I'd love it if I could just knew, I could sit down and just reproduce the formula. If there was one way I wrote and I loved doing it and it kept me being successful all the way down the line, I'd be delighted. It'd make my life a whole lot easier than it is. But um, that's not the way my brain works. My brain just works a bit differently. And I think the most important thing is being true to yourself. If you have a, a weird little brain that takes you in strange places or you have a more orderly brain that takes you down a very mainstream sort of path, it doesn't really matter. As long as you're doing what you know you should be doing, I think that's got to be the goal. Is that where this pursuit of a picture book is coming from? Is it feels like something you want and need to do in a way? Yeah, it's, it started when, um, so I've got two children, um, Dante and Gaia. Dante's my son. He's nine now and Gaia's four. And when Dante was born, uh, so, so about a year, when he was about a year, two years old, he loved chewing on stones. He'd be, we'd, we'd be on a beach, a stone beach, he'd pick up stones and he'd put them in his mouth and he'd be sucking on it and chewing on it. And it used to drive us crazy, his mum and me. But yeah, he just, he loved doing that for a while. And uh, it put this line into my head, my son is a troll, he loves eating stones. And I was reading lots of picture books at the time, you know, the way you do with kids, reading picture books to him. And so I, I meant to do something with it. Uh, I, I ended up not doing anything. Uh, Dante was a very poor sleeper. And you know, for about three years there, I was mentally frizzled. <laughs> Every night I was awake for a couple of hours and up first, you know, very early in the morning, about six o'clock. And yeah, you know, it was very hard to produce anything. Even tying my shoelaces was a struggle. But, um, and I thought the moment had passed and I, I sort of thought, oh yeah, no, no that, that's not going to happen now. And then Gaia was born and she wasn't a big stone eater, but she did chew a couple. But again, I got back into reading lots of picture books to her and she was a much better sleeper. So I felt more like my natural self. And this time I thought, yeah, I've got to do something with this idea. And luckily I'd met this friend of mine, Eva Byrne, uh, through my wife. She was a friend of my wife's and we got to know each other. And she she draws portraits and does commission work, prints. But she, I said to her one day, would you, would you ever think of um, maybe trying to do a, pictures, a picture book for children? She said, oh, it's always my dream to do a picture book. And I said, ah, as it happens, I've got a few different ideas. And I'd written sort of several different ideas down and I, I gave her all of those ideas and said, well, have a look through these, see what you think. And um, she was immediately drawn to this idea about the troll. I developed it, originally I wrote it as a poem, and then I developed it into a, a little short picture book, maybe 32 pages or so long. And she was immediately drawn to that. She said, this is what I want to work on. And so I um, I said, great, let's let's have a go at it. And we tried going down the traditional route, um, but as I said, neither of us have any experience in the field. And Eva also has two young children. She's actually doing a master's at the moment in fine art. So I think the publishers were a bit nervous that you know, we weren't going to produce or that we, weren't, we couldn't guarantee what exactly we were going to produce and also it's a bit of a weird picture book it's not the normal sort of no surprise it's not the normal standard picture book it's a little bit different so um we we decided what we do we're going to try and create a limited edition one-off printing of it uh so that that will raise the money we're fundraising to raise the money so that either can finish the book and then we're going to try the traditional market again if we fail a second time, then we'll probably self-publish it and make it more widely available ourselves. But I'm, I'm hopeful that when the publishers see the actual finished book, that they'll realise, okay, these guys can deliver. This is this is what their vision was. This is where it's taken us. And that they'll, um, they'll, they'll give it a go. If any of your listeners are interested in pre-ordering a copy, it's going to be made to order. We're basically, if we, if we get 200 people who order a copy, the print run's going to be about 200 copies. It's going to be made to order. Uh, you won't be able to buy it, this version anyway down the road. It's just whoever orders, pre-orders it will get a copy. And there's also perks we've done. So you can do a, a one-to-one Zoom chat with me. There's a handwritten copy of the original poem that I wrote. Uh, there's some other really cool perks. And there prints that, that Eva's produced, which are really, I love her artwork. It's really, really cool. 
Um, so if you search for Indiegogo, Darren Shan, or Indiegogo, the terrified troll, that should bring you to the, our fundraiser page. It's still running. Um, I think it's supposed to finish in another week, towards the end of November, but we're probably going to let it run for another month. Some of our, our perks are still available, so we're probably going to extend it so that give people more time to to, to get those. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a different ground for me. It's something I, I'm really enjoying it. And also one of the things I'm enjoying is that someone else has to put in the vast majority of work into this one. I've done my work on it pretty much. I wrote, you know, it took me a day or two to, to write my script and poor Eva has to spend the bulk of a year producing the actual artwork. So, um, yeah, it's quite nice to be the, the supporter for once rather than being the one who has you know, been supported by my agent and they come, come on, Darren, it's okay, it's all right. You know, I'll, I'll be the shoulder for Eva to lead, lead on when times get hard. Whereas I'll, I'll, to myself, I'll be chucking, yes, I don't have anything to do. Yeah, that's got to be a nice change of pace. It's something different. Uh, now, having said that, I'm working very, very hard on the, on the perks. Um, most of the perks have to do, you know, it, uh, chats with me. Um, I'm allowing people to come and meet me, to have dinner with me or meet me. That's in, that's in London or Ireland. So, um uh, yeah, obviously the travel is is a factor, but yeah, there are one to one Zoom calls. There's there's other things that we're we're doing in there. So yeah, I, I've put a lot of time into these, and I'll be going out there meeting people and talking to people afterwards. So I'll, I'll be doing as much as I can to to make it happen. But yeah, it's nice to be the um, the conductor behind the scenes uh, as opposed to being the guy out there up front who has to do the forward. So poor poor Eva doesn't quite know what she's let herself in for. I keep trying to tell her, look, Eva, it's it's going to be horrendous. But she's going, no, 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 I'm going to love it. I'm going to love it. And, and and she might do. hopefully hopefully she will hopefully she enjoys it and hopefully as as I say this is going to be a really limited edition book but I'm hoping that down the road we're going to get a much wider uh, publication deal with it and that it will hopefully change Eva's life the way Set Free changed mine a quarter of a century ago. And what a great way to kind of crowdsource that funding for the initial release, I'm offering all of this for people to come along with. It's, it's really cool, and I think it. I think also for um, yeah, we're, we're, t- we're asking people to for a leap of faith to take a chance on us. But if it does do well down the line, this could, you know, I'm a book collector. I, I love reading. I, I read most of my books off of Kindle these days, but I, I love collecting books as well. I've got a big collection of old first editions and signed copies and stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm aware of the market value of books. And this very, very limited edition, if it goes on to be published widely and that does really well, you know, these books could skyrocket in value. So I, I don't... I, I don't push that when I'm doing the fundraiser. I just I, I don't want to be offering people false hope. I don't want to come across like a pyramid salesman. Say, no, no, buy it. It'll be worth $100,000 this time next year. But um, if it does get published, it's a good, you know, this very, very limited advanced edition is going to be very, very rare. And there was actually a lettered edition. It's almost sold out. There's only two or three copies left. But the num- even the numbered edition is going to be, you know, I don't think it's going to be more than a couple hundred, to be honest. And it's a real opportunity to... To get a book, it's only 25 euros, so maybe less than $30, I think. And it, it will be a really good book. You should buy it because hopefully you'll see some of the artwork online and hopefully your story will appeal to you and the artwork will appeal to you. But I don't think it's going to be a bad investment either. Um, putting that other hat on, you know, I, there are books I've bought in the past where I've paid quite a lot of money for, but been safe in the knowledge that, okay, the market says this is probably going to go up in value in a, in a, in a while. And uh, yeah, I think this is one that could, has, has potential to be a good investment as well as hopefully being a really enjoyable book. Don't turn the don't turn the pages down. Don't crease the pages. Keep it in good condition, please. Yeah, keep it mint. Absolutely. Do take it out of cover. Do read it. I, a, a book should always be read. Don't keep it locked away behind a, a plastic cover. Do do read it and enjoy it. But yeah, try try and keep good 
keep it in good condition just in case. Okay, well, Darren, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate sitting down and talking with you. Oh, thank you. It's been really, really fun. That, that hour has flown by. Do you, you want know, to plug? I always had to do these, do these things. I'm always sort of, oh, how are we going to stretch that out? Oh, God, it's, we're going to be there after 10 minutes. I'm going to be trying to think of things to say. And that's just, that's flown by the blur. So it's been really, really fun for me. Yeah, it's always a fear of, oh, are we just going to be sitting here in silence for 45 minutes? I get that at school sometimes when I go into do school events, um, especially with, with older sort of students, maybe sort of 15, 16-year-olds. The last part of my event, I do readings, but then I'd get to the point where I say, well, okay, have you got any questions? And if no hands go up, that is the most awful silence imaginable. <laughs> uh, do you want to plug where people can find your past work, where they can find Father of the Future, all of your stuff? Oh, God, Father right. I should have been promoting Far for the Future. I'm so focused on Terrified Troll at the moment. I forgot I released the book just last month. Oy. Yeah, so um, thank you for reminding me. Uh, yeah, so these days I release my books for adults under the name of Darren Dash, D-A-S-H. I just wanted to differentiate my adult work from my children's work. I released a few books for adults as Darren Shan many, many years ago, but I never felt comfortable doing that. My publisher's sort of bullied me into it in a way. They were saying, come on, we want to publish other books, but only if you do them as Darren Shad. And I sort of went along with it, but it never sat right with me. So um, nearly 10 years ago, actually, I started doing the other books under the Darren Dash name. Um, you can get those. Currently, they're only available for Amazon, the eBooks, um, and there are print editions as well. But I am going to make that uh, more widely available for the other sellers, Apple and Google Play and so on, uh, hopefully before the end of this year. I just have to let my... A contract, my KDP contracts wind down before I can do that. Um, so yeah, all the Darren Dash, Darren Dash stuff is available through Amazon. Um, that includes Far of the Future, the most recent one. I think it's the seventh book I've published as Darren Dash, six or six or seven. So um, I'm terrible at keeping track of what I've done. But um, yeah, that, that's a, it's a science fiction tale. I, I write in different genres. One of the things I've enjoyed as Darren Dash is because I have no commercial history well you know i'm not on that front I, I, obviously i'm a big commercial commercially best-selling author in the way field in the adult field i'm not i'm just doing whatever i want i've written thrillers one of them has been a straight up thriller there's been a couple of sci-fi ones there was a horror one in there there was a shakespearean themed comedy that i wrote midsummer's bottom which was um yeah it was very very different for me but i enjoyed it so yeah I, I'm, I'm sort of doing whatever grabs my fancy and far for the future is it's actually quite time. I wrote the first draft back in the 1990s. It sat, it sat as a first draft for you know, a couple of decades before I got back to looking at it and rewriting it. But it's all about AI. And so it's actually very, very timely with the rise of this debate at the moment about the dangers of AI. This is a world where AI has taken over. It's looking at how humanity can become sterile and directionless if you know we're not doing all the stuff and computers are doing it for us. So yeah, it's quite a timely one. Um, it's, it's had a good reaction. It's, had, it's, had a, it's one of those ones. It, it's quite a short book. I, I was aiming for the style of a sort of 1950s sci-fi novel, like, like by the likes of um, Asimov or Ray Bradbury back in the 50s or, or um, Arthur C. Clarke, but with a sort of modern sort of a feel to it. So it was like trying to do that sort of style, but in a modern context. So it was a, it was, it was a different one. I, I wasn't sure what the reaction was, was going to be like, actually. I kept, the, I kept the cost of it very, very low. It was only $2.99. Normally I charge $4.99 for a new book. But I thought, I don't know, if people hate it, I don't want to overcharge them. But it's actually had really, really good reactions. Yeah, it's had really good feedback on, you'll see on Amazon Goodreads, and the reviews have been for it. So, um, yeah, if, if you'd like to buy Father of the Future or anything else by Darren Dash, head to Amazon. And soon, 
all other ebook stores as well. And there's also a hardback edition of Father of the Future and a paperback. Uh, they're both on Amazon. There are paperbacks of the other Darren Dash books as well, and I probably will do hardback version of those a little bit further down the line. Okay. Okay.